Ecclesia is a new church trying to live out the way of Jesus in Princeton, New Jersey. We pray this teaching invites you to love Jesus and people more deeply and to embrace the full life that Jesus offers each one of us. Grace and peace to you. This morning's scripture reading is from Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he argued in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and also in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Also, some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers debated with him. Some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign divinities. This was because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So they took him and brought him to the Areopagus and asked him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? It sounds rather strange to us, so we would like to know what it means. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners living there would spend their time in nothing but telling or hearing something new. Then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. From one ancestor he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live, so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him, though indeed he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move, and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we too are his offspring. Since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and imagination of mortals. While God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some scoffed, but others said, We will hear from you again about this. At that point Paul left them, but some of them joined him and became believers, including Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Alex. Well, good morning. It's so good to be here together with you guys. And we're walking through this series that's unpacking this story that Alex just read for us. And it's a really, um, for us, last week, we kind of jumped into it. And what we saw was really how similar the worlds of first century Athens and the worlds of 21st century Princeton really are. And so we're seeing that, that though like our worlds are separated by this vast distance of culture and language and time and geography, that still there's these similarities that, that uh, run alongside our worlds. And so what we want to do is, is kind of immerse ourselves in that world 
and to see how the story that, that Paul is telling and the story that Jesus lived out has everything to do with our modern world. And so a couple of the questions that we began to ask last week is like Paul talks about he's deeply distressed by all the idols that he sees. Like, do we still have idols in our world? Like, is that a thing in our sort of modern post-scientific age? And another thing is, if, if they are here, like, what do we do about them? So we began to explore some of those questions. And for this morning, what we want to do is we want to delve deeper into Paul's time in Athens. This week, we're gonna, going to ascend Mars Hill and to listen in as Paul as he unpacks for these people that are listening uh, the story of Jesus and the resurrection of God. But also, I think what Paul does for us is he gives us a model, a model for us to be a people, a, a people who long for our neighbors to come to know this amazing thing that's happened in Christ. And what we see is the way that Paul does it has so much to say about what we have to say to our neighbors today. And so what we're going to do is we're going to walk through this whole passage today. Alex read it for us so beautifully. And so if you have a Bible or you have a phone, turn over to Acts 17. If you have your phone, um, you can, there's a Bible app that you can download. You can pull it up on the internet. It's not labeled Facebook, just, just to help you out. But it's also, you can pull that up. Acts 17, I'm going to turn over there myself. And it's in the New Testament, so if you're new to the Bible, if you hit like the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you're on the right track. It's the next one after that. So Acts 17, beginning in verse 16, it says, While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he argued in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and also in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So the situation we find ourselves in, Paul is basically having a layover. Like he's in between spaces. And so he's traveling to one place in Greece from another place. And he's got a little bit of time in the city. And I don't know if you've ever traveled internationally and you've had one of those awesome layovers. I've never had this happen, by the way. Like I've flown to like across the world. People are like, yeah, we had an awesome layover in Hawaii. So we left. Like I'm very jealous of you. But Paul is kind of doing this thing. He has this layover in Athens, and so he begins to just wonder about the city. And I like this posture towards life. I think some of you are probably wired this way. Like, you, it, given the choice between sitting in an airport and being, like, crushed with 24-7 news and, like, food that costs 20 bucks for a, like, you know, crappy hamburger, or you can get out of the world and you can go just explore a little bit, most of you, I bet, would probably go explore and so Paul takes his opportunity and he wanders the streets of Athens. And last week what we saw is the first thing that Acts tells us about Paul's response to the city is that he's like filled with distress. He's overwhelmed by the sheer magnitude of idolatry in Athens. So Paul responds the way that he always does. He doesn't let this feeling of distress or this feeling that the odds are stacked against him overwhelm him. What he does is he begins to tell the story of what Jesus has done. Now, if you read throughout Acts, you see that Paul has a pattern. Paul is sort of a traveling evangelist. His job, as he sort of understands it, is to travel to different cities throughout the ancient world and to start churches there. So Paul will come to a new city. And he, he starts to engage this cultural pattern. He'll start first in the synagogue. And the synagogues of Paul's day were kind of like synagogues of our own day. Local gathered bodies of Jewish believers. And for Paul, he would start in the synagogues because the story he was telling was a thoroughly Jewish story. 
you know, so often I think we, we kind of have this like baseline understanding of what's going on in something like the Old Testament. And if you read in books like Exodus or Leviticus and you see like God is jealous and he's angry, it's really easy for us to then like fast forward to Jesus and think that these are talking about two different things. But what Paul had was a wider understanding of the narrative of Scripture, a wider understanding of the promises that had been given to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And what he saw in Jesus was that Jesus had fulfilled these promises. And so for Paul, he doesn't see these stories as two uh, competing narratives or two different stories. He sees them as the continuation of one story. And so Paul would start in the synagogues because he was telling a thoroughly Jewish story. And today, we, standing here some 2,000 years later, we're inheritors of that story. Our story doesn't begin with Jesus. It begins in Genesis 1. For God, you know, he made the world and he called it good. And so for us, it's, it's, so, it's so important for us to begin to delve into what is the narrative and the story that the Bible is telling. And friends, at, you know, here at Ecclesia, that's something we are so passionate about. It's one of my favorite things to do is to kind of pull back the wider angle. And so walk with us. We're going to tell that story well. So Paul would start in the synagogues, and he would go to a town, and he would say, look, the promises that you have been waiting for, the, the Messiah that you have been waiting for, this, this return of God that you have been waiting for, it has all happened. It has all happened in this Jesus of Nazareth. It has all happened in this crucified Messiah. And now, he, though he was killed on a cross, he, three days later, he was raised again from the dead. And he would tell that story. And the interesting thing about Paul was that he would just tell that story. Like he saw so much power in telling that story over and over again. He didn't feel the need to like, you know, make it incredibly relevant all the time. He would just tell this beautiful story. And we see this pattern playing out throughout his time in Acts. But in Athens, unlike many of the other places Paul visits, he also goes to the marketplace. Now, the word translated marketplace for us in our text is not simply a place where there was commerce happening, buying and selling. It's kind of a mixture of a, like a town hall center, a municipal center, where government is being administered. There's temples and shrines to Zeus or to Jupiter. You know, most of the cities in this time were modeled after Rome because Rome was constantly wanting to remind all these far-flung places that Rome was in charge, Rome was the pattern of, of life, and that everything else flowed from Rome. Also in these uh, marketplaces were, um, you know, things like public baths, more statues and temples. So as Paul is walking through Athens, he sees, you know, literally just inundated with idols. And so for Paul, he's in this town center. And, you know, for us, you can almost picture it like Palmer Square. Like go down there and Paul has basically, what he's decided to do is he's just going to carve out a little space and he's going to start telling the story about Jesus. Now, I don't know how many of you were in town this week, but I, I observed uh, quite a, an interesting interaction. There were people that had set up a table, this was like Tuesday or Wednesday in Palmer Square, and they were talking about going to the moon and to Mars. And they were really fired up about it. I'm not really sure. What, I didn't get like stick around to see the whole subtext of it. But the best thing about Princeton is you can't just like, make a stance and say something without somebody else coming up to you. This woman was trying to correct them, and she's, she's arguing. And the only part of the conversation I heard was, well, we can't talk if you can't agree on facts. 
And I'm watching this woman, and I, f- I feel bad for her at one level, because, I, like, yeah, I mean, talking about going to the moon and to Mars, there's probably something, something deeper going on here. But I'm not sure who to feel worse for, because, like, you know, obviously the people that have set up the table, like, have, you know, they've gone down a long path of, like, you know, maybe they've thought about this a lot, and they've come to this conclusion. But this woman now is also trying to correct them, and I'm trying to figure out, like, who's, who's crazier here? But Paul is in a space much like that one. And he's carved out, and he's, he, like, basically in Athens, like it says in verse 21, like the people just spent time engaging new ideas. Paul is set up on the corner, and he's starting to talk about Jesus. He's starting to, like an open-air preaching kind of thing. And we've all seen this go badly, right? Like when Christians are holding up their signs that say horrible things, like God hates you and all that kind of stuff. This is not what Paul's doing. Paul's not saying, all of you need to repent. What he's saying is, Jesus has done something. Jesus has done something that has fundamentally changed the arc of the world. And so he carves out his space in this open-air market, and he begins to tell the story of Jesus of Nazareth. And it says there in verse 18, it says, Also, some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers debated with him. And some said, What does this babbler want to say? Others said he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign divinities. This was because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So they took him, and they brought him to the Areopagus and asked him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? It sounds rather strange to us, so we would like to know what it means. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners living there would spend their time in nothing but telling or hearing something new. Now Paul's teaching begins to attract a crowd. And is now eliciting responses from the crowd. Verse 18 tells us that there were Epicurean and Stoic philosophers present. And they start to debate with Paul. Now, Epicureans and Stoics were two of the most prominent philosophical schools of their day. Now, I think it's worth exploring what these were uh, so we can have an understanding because I actually think there's quite a few parallels to our own culture. So, the Epicureans were relatively small in number, and I think you'll see why here in just a moment. But they often exercised an outsized influence because of their popularity amongst the elites. Epicureans by Paul's day believed that the gods existed in a distant perfection far removed from the world. They were unconcerned with this world. There was no life after death, so the best that a person could do from an Epicurean mindset was to pursue pleasure at all costs and and run from pain. Now, you could see why this philosophy was mostly limited to the rich. Like, if you're a peasant and you're trying to scrape out your daily bread, you can't actually be like, ah, you know, the pain thing's not really for me. I'm just going to live my best life here, right? So the Epicureans were like one philosophical wing that was present. And, and Luke tells us here in Acts 17 that they're present as Paul is talking. Now, the Stoics, on the other hand, the Stoics were a much more influential group. They were much, uh, the Stoicism was much more widely practiced. Stoicism was this incredibly practical ethical system that focused more on discipline than speculation. Now, whereas Epicureans saw pleasure as a good, Stoics thought it was a vice to be avoided. Stoics placed a heavy emphasis upon fate and saw everything that happened as an expression of the will of the divine one who made the world and governed it. For the Stoics, when you died, a person was simply absorbed back into the divine, what they call the divine logos. And no personal existence remained after death. Now there's a lot of influence that we see in sort of Eastern religion here. You know, you think about modern day Buddhism. It's sort of an emptying of self. 
in order to be absorbed back into the ongoing cycles of the world. This is a lot like Stoicism. Now, as we see these two wings, we can begin to pull back and see a little bit of our modern world in the midst of all of it. Much of the operating system of our Western culture is Epicurean. Avoid pain at all costs. Pursue pleasure. Everything should be on demand. Like, why is it taking so long? Have you ever, like, tried to pull up a website on your phone and got really annoyed when it took longer than two seconds? Like, the Wi-Fi here is terrible, right? Like, we just live in this world that tells us it should be tailored to us. Epicureans were largely derided in their day for being, uh, like, frivolous and not contributing to society at all. And you think about that, and we will all want to be, like, I'm sure you guys are all, like, contributing members and hardworking and disciplined and all of that. But then, have you ever been caught in a YouTube wormhole? Like, I, I never knew I cared so much about guys being able to throw a Frisbee in a basketball hoop from, like, three football fields away. But then, like, an hour later, I'm like, man, that was awesome. The larger substructure of our world tells you to do whatever you want, as long as you're not hurting anyone. But this is a sort of Epicurean framework, and within this framework, there are still the Stoics. There are still the people who feel this fundamental falseness with the story of the world, who try their best to carve out meaning and purpose. I think Stoicism has sort of a negative connotation in our culture, but, but I think for us, the modern-day equivalent of the Stoics are the seekers. Like, for us, like, if you were to ask me, like, why do you try to be generous? Why do you try to be kind? Why do you try to be good? I would tell you it's all because of Jesus. It's, it's because Jesus has fundamentally altered and shaped my life, and I want to live for him. But there's so many people that do, like, things that, like, if you put my life in theirs, like, they're living this incredible life. And th- if you ask them why, why are they living this way? They wouldn't say, oh, it's because I think God wants me to. They're just like, you know, I just think I, I, just think I should be a good person. Like, I think I should just try really hard. And, and what I think we see in Paul's story in Acts 17 is he's talking to those people. He's saying to you, look, you, you've been running after this thing that is true of all the world. And for many of you, that may be true of you today. You may have just said, I've just been trying to do my best I've been trying to, to, to do my best to be a generous and kind person and to, to, to treat life uh, with fairness and equality. If that's you, I think Paul is talking to you today. And what we'll see is that Paul pulls a lot from the stories of the Stoics because he's saying you're on the right path. The thing that you're seeking, this story that you've, you've been kind of living into even though you wouldn't put a name to it, I'm going to tell you a name for it. And so what I want to do is if, if you're just kind of like, yeah, like you're in a church and you're like, I've been trying to be a good person. That's generally the way I feel about life. I'm going to invite you just to listen and lean in because I think Paul has such a word for you today. Stoicism and Epicureanism were kind of the main two wings that Paul is dealing with. And much of Paul's primary teaching will be directed towards the Stoics. Now, it is likely that as Paul is talking, especially because he's not a famous or a respected orator, that those who are taking issue with what he's saying are just interrupting him. They're, they're, they're listening to Paul, and he'll talk about the resurrection of Jesus, and they're like, nope, excuse me. And so Paul, what he's doing is he begins to engage in this debate. And like, we're in Princeton. Like, I've, <laughs> I've rarely seen people be so direct with one another as when scholars— talk about their areas of expertise. 
Like I've, I've had the opportunity a couple times to be in these sort of like uh, conversations where one scholar is, you know, saying his viewpoint on like Paul in the New Testament and he's doing that in front of his peers. And man, like you sometimes, you listen to their interactions and you're like, hey, whoa, whoa, guys, like it's, it's fine. Like we all can get along here, but there's a directness and a, uh, an assertiveness there when people think that they're uh, talking about something that they know. And so I'm sure Paul is likely dealing with something like that. And as Paul keeps talking, these people begin to mock him. And the word we have translated here, babbler, is actually like the picture of a rooster pecking at grains. And what they're saying is that Paul is this hack copycat who has taken little bits of different stories and cobbled them together. And so what they do is they're like, okay, this guy, he's babbling on about this resurrection of Jesus. We're going to take him before our town council. And this Areopagus that was mentioned a couple times in the passage it's kind of like a wisdom council. They're like the people who evaluate ideas. They say, okay, this is, a, this is a plausible idea, or this is not a plausible idea. Paul, in proclaiming that Jesus is God, that he's resurrected, that he is the reigning king over all the world, is introducing a foreign idea into the minds of the Athenians. Because Paul is, is speaking of what sounds like a new or a foreign god, this council the Areopagus must hear Paul's claims about God in order to allow the admittance of Jesus into the Athenian pantheon. So let me just remind you of the scene here. Paul has been walking through the streets. He is overwhelmed by the like, amount of idols. There are gods everywhere. And so what they think Paul is trying to do, they think Paul wants to have a statue to Jesus made in the city too. They think like he's walking through the city seeing all these gods and he's like, you know, there should be a statue to Jesus too. But what we'll see is that Paul has other things in mind. He continues, Luke writes in verse 22. Then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus, this wisdom council, and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown I want to proclaim to you today. Do you remember how Paul initially responded to the just like vast magnitude of idols in the city? It says in verse 16 that he was deeply distressed. Paul is sort of like, oh, he's taken aback. Like he has this response to what he sees in the city. But look at how he begins to talk to the people. Look at how he begins to address them. He doesn't blow them up for being hopelessly idolatrous. He doesn't say, you morons, you're worshiping a rock. Like literally you made that with your hands and you think it's your God? Are you kidding me? No. Instead, he points to the longing. He says to the Athenians, I see that you are very religious because why on earth would anybody else have all of these gods? I see that you are longing for something. And then he makes this cultural connection. He says, I was walking through the streets and I saw that amongst all these gods, you had this one, this altar to an unknown God. And for the Athenians, they were just trying to cover their bases. They're like, maybe there's some unknown God out there that we didn't name, that if we don't name him and honor him, that he will smite us. So we better make sure we cover that one too. That's kind of covering our bases. But what Paul says is, I saw this altar to an unknown God. And so what you proclaim is unknown. I'm going to make known to you today. And then he goes on, verse 24. 
He says, the God who made the world and everything in it, he who is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. From one ancestor he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live, so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him, though indeed he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Paul's exposition, he begins to talk about this unknown God. And it starts with creation. He says the God who made the whole world, he doesn't need shrines. And he speaks of God's ruling majesty. And he immediately changes the narrative. You Remember the, the council thought Paul wanted to build a shrine to Jesus. But what he's saying is Jesus doesn't need a shrine. He made the whole world. He's reigning over every single person and every single thing. He doesn't need a statue or a temple. He needs to be acknowledged. He needs to be seen for what he is. He then describes their common ancestry. He says from one ancestor he made the entire world. And this is a nod to the stoic idea that all people have sprung from this divine logos. He then describes God placing people where they would live in the boundaries of their lives. He's saying like you, you have been put in a place. And then he points to the purpose of all of that in Ecclesia. I, I hope that you see this so much today because this points us towards God's calling for us to help make God known. He puts people in these places. He puts them in these certain uh, places geographically and in time so that, so that they might search for him, so that they might know him. Paul is saying that the point of life for all of us is to know God. Paul is saying that you've been put in the situation that you are in, the, the family, the place that you live in this time and place in order that you might search for God, in order that you might perhaps find him. And then Paul just very subtly inserts the beauty of the gospel. And he says, for God, for God is not far from any one of us. God is not far away. You know, you know so often in Christian language, people describe people as being far from God. No, no. Jesus died. He overcame every distance. There is not a single soul on the whole earth that is far from God. We are all near to him, and he is drawing near to us. So often, he's just trying to help us to awaken to that reality. And this is what Paul is doing for these people here. He's not blowing them up for being hopeless idolaters. He's not saying, your, your culture, your society, your decisions that you've made are so stupid. You, you should really figure that out. What he's saying is that God is near. And he is drawing near in every moment. And he quotes from a Stoic poet. It'd be like for one of us to quote, you know, from like anywhere from like Chance the Rapper to James Taylor. He's saying, look, your own poets have said this. For in him we live and we move and we have our being. And Paul quotes from the Stoics to say, look, the ideas that you've been pursuing, the, the, the things that you've, been held, uh, that you've held to be true are, are already illuminated by Jesus in the gospel. And this is a little hint about where we're going next week. But what we see as Paul quotes from these, you know, philosophers, he's not quoting from the Bible. He's not saying, oh, in, you know, Exodus 21, it says this. He says, no, your own poets have said this. 
Next week, we're going to talk about how this truth that pervades the whole world, it's all God's truth. It's all God's beauty that wherever we see purpose, wherever we see peace, wherever we hear the transcendent, God is meeting us there, beckoning us to know his name. But Paul, in this moment, having established a common ground with his listeners, now shows how their own culture is proving the point of what Paul is saying. He traces the longing to its source. He then returns to his point about the idols in the city. He says, look, look, you've been forming God in your own image. You've been making all these little statues that you can worship or that, you know, you hope will take care of you. You've been making these little, these little idols that you think will save you in your own image rather than realizing that you, each and every one of you, are made in the image of God and that he, he centers it all on the Jesus story in verse 29. He says, since, since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of mortals. While God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some scoffed, but others said, we will hear you again about this. There's a couple things I just want you to see. For Paul, belief in Jesus is not this formulaic thing. It's not, hey, Jesus died for your sins, so now you can, you can go to heaven. Paul's saying that something has happened. Something has transpired in the history of the world, in the life of Jesus of Nazareth, that has changed everything. It is a fundamental announcement about the way the world is now uh, after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the other thing is, like, Paul, like, is one of the most incredible evangelists ever. He's one of the most incredible people at telling the story of Jesus. He understands it better than any of us. And look at the response. Some are like, cool. (laughs) Other people are like, huh, you can say more. So for us, like, so much of this is taking the pressure off, right? Like, you don't have to be an expert at this. Like, God is so much em- empowering and enlivening our time as we, as we as talk about what he's done. And so with all of this, as we kind of told this story today, I just want to move towards two posture shifts for us. You know, as, as we started this church, for me, the thing that is so fundamental to, to what I've seen God doing in my own life As I talk to people, and most of my days are filled with some combination of meeting with people from our church and then interacting with people who have no faith at all. And it's such a rich thing that I get to do. And for so many people, I see that the God that they have rejected, the God that they say, yeah, I mean, you know, I tell them I'm a pastor and that immediately sets the conversation on, you know, any number of sort of awkward directions. But then I'm trying to say, like, I, you know, you can, you can be yourself here. You know, I, I have some friends in my life who will swear, and they'll say, oh, sorry. I'm like, I, that, that's fine. I live in New Jersey. This is totally fine. But the God that they're so often rejecting as I listen to them talk is not a God I've ever believed in anyway. And so for us, as, as a people and as a church community, what I hope, what I hope fundamentally for us as we are just in this new phase of life is that we can be a people who just meet people where they are, as Paul does. And this is amazing, right? Like he doesn't say, you morons, you idolaters. He says, look, I see you're religious. 
I see that you are longing for something. Let me just kind of walk down the line of that longing. Let me trace that to its source a little bit. And so I hope that we can be a people who can meet people where they are and can go throughout the process of being patient and in relationship with people, not trying to hurry them along. And I hope that we can be a people who through our lives, not just our words, through our community together, that can embody what it means for Jesus to reveal God fully. I hope that we can be a people who by our love for one another and by our commitment to the flourishing of this place, that we can show people that God is so much better than they probably ever imagined. And so today I just want to encourage you to towards two posture shifts as we're here and we're trying to say, how do we tell this Jesus story in a meaningful and compelling way? Now first, Paul's whole dialogue is ignited by what he has seen. He's walked throughout the streets of Athens and then he says, look, I've seen, I've observed some things. Paul, I think, gives us a model as this sort of traveling evangelist that we can follow even more thoroughly as a people who live in a particular place over a long period of time. Remember, Paul was just in Athens for a day, right? Like, he was just there for a couple of hours. For most of us, like, you're at least here throughout the school year, and for many of us, you're here, your, like, every waking moment of your life. And so for us, I think we have some advantages over Paul because we can, we can do the hard, long work of cultivating relationships that Paul can't do here. Paul's just kind of dipping in and dipping out. But what I would encourage you to do is change your posture, and this is so easy for us in our sort of consumerist culture. You know, we sort of think that the world revolves around us. We're sort of all tourists in the world. Like if you ever, like I, uh, this uh, January, I went to Denver. Anybody d- been to Denver? Like Denver's a proper city, right? It's a great place, right? But I'm also so glad I don't live there. And let me tell you why. As I'm walking through the streets, like, there are so many, like, there's, there's a vast homeless problem. There's so many things that I'm like, oh, the citizens of this city have a lot of work to do. But you know what the great thing for me was? I don't live there. I get to just walk through the streets. Oh, let me pull up Yelp. Beautiful coffee shop. Awesome. Thank you, Denver. Oh, what a lovely Tex-Mex restaurant. Thank you, Denver. Now I'm going to go back to New Jersey where I am responsible for the, the way things are. Good luck to you, Denver. And for many of us, we live our lives even in the places that we live like that. We live like tourists. We live like people that are consuming as opposed to people that are contending. And so what I want to do is just urge you towards a posture shift from a tourist to an ambassador. From somebody who's moving, just moving through a place to somebody you've seen the beauty of the kingdom of Jesus and you're saying, this, this world is the way that things were meant to be. To, to, to move from consuming to contending. To being responsible for the place that you live. Where are these people looking for hope? Where are they building up idols that will not save them? And how can you come alongside them right in that space and say, hey, hey, that thing you've been building up towards an unknown God, that thing you've been chasing after, let me tell you about that. So the first posture shift is from a tourist to an ambassador. An ambassador is somebody who lives in a place that's not their home, but lives on behalf of their country, lives on behalf of the world that they were made for. And Hebrews, one, Hebrews tells us that we were made for a, a city that is eternal, a city that will never pass away. And we are ambassadors of that kingdom. Paul tells us this in 2 Corinthians as well. So from tourism to being an ambassador. The second posture shift as we wrap up here today. Paul was initially taken aback by the sheer volume of idols in Athens. 
Verse 16 tells us he was deeply distressed. But notice, and this is so, so important for us, Ecclesia, he doesn't move to a posture of judgment. He doesn't see the overwhelming amount of idols and decide that God could never do anything here. Rather, he observes and then he finds an opportunity to tell them the good news about Jesus. Ecclesia, the most compassionate thing that we can do is proclaim the gospel of Jesus with our lives. And we have an advantage over Paul in this regard. Paul doesn't have any time to build up relationships. He doesn't have time to demonstrate that Jesus is alive by his actions, but we do. We have the opportunity to be friends with people. We have the opportunity to show up in their lives over the long haul and to show the love of Jesus. For us, I want to encourage this shift today from judge to advocate. So many people think that God is the judge. And Paul says that there is a moment that it is all centering upon Jesus. But what would it look like for us to advocate on behalf of our neighbors? To advocate for them before Jesus. To be, to be uh, like broken for them. And this is what drives Paul's evangelism in, in Athens. He sees the sheer enormity of the idols in the city. He sees the people that have been dehumanized by their worship of things that are less than God. And it moves him to speak. It moves him to move. And for so many of us, I think we just get so caught up in looking at everybody else's life and saying, well, I'm, I'm, I'm not that bad, right? Like, I'm doing my best. But I think Paul is demonstrating for us a shift, a posture and a cultural shift from being judges, from looking out at the world and saying, well, at least we're not that. And, you know, you can other any individual group of people in any way that, you know, our society finds acceptable, But what would it look like for us to be people who contend, to be people who advocate? Because what this does for Paul is it leads him to urgency. And I think when I look at our, uh, the church in America, the church in the West, this is what I see is lacking. We lack urgency. We are overwhelmed by the cultural forces so often and it moves us to, to kind of hide away and to shirk away. But for Paul, he stands in the marketplace and he says, there is a king of all the world and this is good news because he loves you. What would it mean for us to be a people who advocate on behalf of our neighbors, advocate with our words? And this is so often where we, we get a little afraid, right? But there is so much power, and Paul demonstrates this throughout his life, in just saying the name of Jesus, and just proclaiming, like, in whatever limited way you can, like, I don't know all the theological distinctions, I don't know everything about the omnipresence and omnipotence of God, but here's what I know. I was blind, but now I see. That Jesus has done something fundamental in me that has changed my life. And that thing that has been done in me, he's done in a lot of other people. And so it seems that he is changing the entire world. We talked last week about how our world is full of idols, just like the world that Paul experienced in Athens. But for Paul, his experience in Athens leads him to urgency. It leads him to speak. It leads him to move. And so I hope, Ecclesia, that the state of our world, the state of our neighborhoods, the state of the longing, just the sort of ambient anxiety and depression that so often exists in our world would move us to a place of urgency, of sustained effort, of patient trust that God is moving, and that it would move us to be a people of prayer. People who say, God, would you just, would you do something beyond what I could even imagine in the lives of those people that you have placed in my life?
As Paul walks the streets, he sees an altar to an unknown God. And what he does is he says, friends, this God has a name. His name is Jesus, and he loves you beyond anything that you could ever imagine. And he is king over all the world, and he announces what God has done to move close to us. And he says, for in him we live, and we move, and we have our being. Friends, God is not far from any one of us. He is near, and he is drawing near. Let, a, let that lead us to be ambassadors of that beautiful kingdom, and let that lead us to a sustained urgency that works on behalf of our neighbors. Let us pray. God, we are, we are people who see a lot. Lord, we see a lot uh, of what goes on in the world, and it leads us to just feeling overwhelmed. So God, would you remind us in, in the big things, in the things like Hurricane Dorian that is so impacted, the people in the Bahamas, Lord, that just seems, the, the scale and the magnitude of which just seems so overwhelming. The, the, the things that are just massive in scale to the things that just seem like so personal and so hidden in our own lives. God, would you remind us of the story that Paul tells the Athenians? That there is not simply, uh, that we're not left simply with altars to an unknown God, but that we are given the name of the beautiful God who reigns over all the earth. Lord, that in sending Jesus, God, you have revealed yourself fully. God, in, in going to the cross, you have shown what God has always been like. God, you have showed us the fullness of your nature. Jesus, that you are a God who would give of himself to the utmost. God, empty yourself in order that you might show us your beautiful love for us. And God, you're not a God who's just subject to death, who just gives of his life in order that we might live. God, but you are alive forevermore. You have overcome everything. God, there is no height, no depth, no distance that would ever separate us from your love. So God, we pray that you would make this our story, make this real to us this morning. It's in your name we pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information, please visit www.ecclesianj.com.